0: We know it as the Big Apple, the biggest city in the nation and in the world even by some counts, but New York City in 1870 was a disgusting place. In 1870, the total population of New York City was 1.9 million persons, but that's not all. There were 100,000 horses in New York City. Now there are people in this parish that already can do the math, but I'm going to lay it out for you here. One horse produces about between 10 and 20 pounds of manure every day, times 100,000, that's a million pounds of manure every day. And you had to walk through it in 1870 New York City. That was a big, big problem. And it wasn't just horse mess, but it was human mess as well. The the sewer system was remedial in the city of New York, and so, as you might imagine, it was a dirty, dirty place. As a matter of fact, the leading cause of death in New York City in the 1870s was cholera, which is a bacterial infection that you get from living around, well, poo. And so we often point towards all of the great advances of the modern age starting with the internet i know and then moving quickly back to electricity but i would say that without good clean water and sewage that attends that we wouldn't have even been able to have the conversation about electricity staying clean has got to be the top of the list and i'm sure that it's uh, only barely too soon just to remember our years dealing with COVID and the obsession with cleanliness. But it's not simply that. My son has recently begun working at BWXT, and it's not just about germs. It's about making sure that one chemical doesn't touch the other chemical, because if it does, you get a big boom. So the fact is, is that we're constantly in the modern world concerned with contamination, both antiseptic and chemical contamination, but we're not the first to be concerned about that. All of the Jewish law, it seems, was about making sure that you stayed clean, either physically or ritually. To, be, to remain clean was not simply a question of not getting sick, because there was no germ theory at the time, but instead the Jews were supposed to be clean as they related to the Lord their God, So Moses receives the law at God's hand, and we find it in Numbers, the fifth chapter. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has an infectious skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp when I dwell among them. Skin disease. There it is. Anyone with acne, so we wouldn't have any teenagers in our church. (laughs) To be unclean before the Lord their God was one of the primary concerns of the Jews in their day. And we see how it is that when Jesus came into this world, taking upon himself our flesh that he was surrounded by those who were adamant that they remain clean so that they could be about the business of the temple. Indeed, our Lord Jesus criticized his Jewish neighbors, the leaders, who he said spent more time concerned about cleaning cups and plates and clothes and food, and they had left off the greater things of the law. But we find here in our gospel lesson today, according to Matthew, that Jesus himself was not worried about staying clean. We find that he touches two unclean persons in our gospel lesson today, the first one being the sick woman who had an effusion of blood, it said, for 12 years. And then we find him touching the dead body of the young girl who, in another gospel, telling this same story, mentions that she was 12 years old. So we have this interesting parallel between the 12-year-old girl and the 12 years of suffering of this older woman who had spent all of her money with the doctors. And so we find that Jesus himself stands in the midst of the uncleanness of this world, but is not worried that he himself should be unclean, but instead infects others, not infected by them, but infects them with his holy life. So Jesus goes out into the midst of the people and he is surrounded by crowds and a woman who had suffered this terrible disease touches him and he feels the power go out from him and he turns to her and she, of course, makes herself known to him and he says these wondrous words, your faith has healed you. And then Jesus went on with the leader of the synagogue to his own home in which the crowds there were mourning the loss of this young life And he sent them away, even as they laughed at his foolishness, not knowing the difference between sleep and death. And he raised her from the dead. He touched her, and he told her father that his faith had been the effective element. Jesus wasn't infected, but infected others with his divine life. The faith of the father, the faith of the woman, they too found themselves wrapped up into the power of that life-giving life of Jesus. We find that Matthew wants us to be meditating upon this idea of salvation. The word for healing that he uses throughout this passage is the same word that we would use to, to refer to being saved or rescued from danger or emergency. Jesus saves this woman Jesus saves the little girl and all of the hopes of her father who mourned the early death of his beloved. And again we find here in this passage that Jesus reaches down and raises this young lady. The Greek word here is Anastasia or Anastaso, which is where we get that beautiful young girl's name, often much loved by the Greeks and the Russians as well, to name a daughter, Anastasia. The gift of new life, the resurrection power of Jesus. She got up and walked away. All of these in our gospel lesson pointing to this deeper truth that what Jesus had come to do in this world that he loved so much was to defeat the forces of evil in the world, to come and defeat the powers of sin and death and Satan, and those who would benefit from his great power were those who would believe in him with hearts of faith and, yes, of thanksgiving. We're so often led to believe that the reason the gospel writers include these miracles that we've heard throughout the whole season of Trinity as we draw to the end of our season, we have heard of Jesus' miracle working power all the way through this season. And we have often been taught that the purpose of this inclusion was to show that Jesus was God. But that's an odd conclusion by virtue of the fact that so many others in the biblical texts, Old and New Testament alike, Moses, Elijah, the apostles, they all performed miracles, even some as great as Jesus, raising the dead and curing those who were deaf and dumb. Each one of these were miracle workers, and yet we wouldn't say that they were God. When Paul, in his extensive correspondence with the churches of the Mediterranean, speaks of Jesus' divinity, he never mentions Jesus' miracles. So it does not seem that miracles stand to prove Jesus's divinity. Instead, I would propose to you this morning that what the gospel writers want us to consider is is that in Jesus, God was doing something new. There was a mighty power being released into the world through Jesus's earthly ministry. But this power was not to be relegated or confined to this world. But instead, the miracles, each one in their own way, point beyond the thing itself to the eternal. Jesus, changing water into wine, invites us to consider the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great feast that awaits those who love the Lord their God, that God is the groom, the church is his bride. Jesus feeding the 5,000 shows Jesus as the new Moses, establishing the new Israel as the old Israel had refused and rejected their own Messiah. These ones following Jesus through the wilderness by faith would be fed that bread come down from heaven. They were a holy nation. They were set aside for the special ministry of God to the world. Jesus, healing the blind man, shows Jesus as the light of the world. and Those who see him with eyes of faith they are the children of God. These are the lessons that the gospel writers invite us to consider, each in their own way as they include these healing miracles that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. Of course, all of these miracles have the temptation to lead us into mistake. One in particular is the common spiritual mistake that all real Christians who have real faith should be able to perform these real miracles. Christian scientists and Pentecostals say that we in our own day should be able to perform these kinds of miracles. But I would propose to you that their emphasis on the fact that since we do not, we must lack faith, really misses the point after all. That Christians, each one, may have faith, that does not necessarily mean that we are able to perform these miraculous signs. That is true to some degree that ideas in our, in our own lives have consequences. Our faith does indeed bring us to life, offered to us in Jesus, but it does not immediately connect or correlate with the fact that we should be able to perform these mighty miraculous acts. Our behavior instead depends on true belief. Our behavior should be confirmed and conformed to the truth as we know it in Jesus. And each one of us are encouraged to increase our faith day by day as we seek the Lord in our own lives. But What I offer to you this morning as it relates to these miraculous acts and specifically as Jesus raises this young woman from the dead in the gospel according to Matthew is that death is sadly the state of all human beings since Adam and Eve fell from grace. But death is sadly a part of the human life and death is not something that should be avoided but instead the Christian faith invites us to overcome death by the act of faith. Faith in the one who healed the suffering gives us hope in the midst of our own suffering. Faith in the resurrected Messiah assures us of our own resurrection. And finally, the role of suffering in our own lives as we meet it day by day, either small or great, the role of suffering serves to increase our faith. Our prayer, you see, my friends, must be that our faith should not fail. In the midst of that temptation, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is our prayer, that Jesus will hold us in his love as we respond to him in faith. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this, indeed, is where the gospel leads us, that the miracle-performing Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, had come bringing into this world that he had made, now the power of new life, the power of resurrection. And so the Christian church takes its place following their Messiah through the ages, bringing that resurrection life into the world. How do we bring that kingdom life into the world? Well, first, as I've spoken to you over the last few weeks, the gospel lessons at the end of the Trinity season bring us again and again to the themes of repentance and forgiveness. It is the power of forgiving others who have so terribly offended us, have hurt us, even injured us. It is the power of forgiveness that releases the resurrection life of Jesus into this world. It is through the power of mercy and charity as we heard in the parable of the wicked servant who would not forgive the debt as he had been forgiven a mountain of debt. It is through mercy and charity that the church flourishes and reaches out into the dark and dying world. It is that salvation that we hear about in our gospel lesson today, to release those bound in darkness and death, to release those from sin who ask forgiveness. Indeed, to release the power of resurrection into this world. Jesus, of course, did all of these perfectly, but it did not end with him to say that Jesus came was resurrected and then ascended and took all of his power with him would be a terrible conclusion. Instead, his ministry only was the inauguration of the great ministry of the church. What did the apostles do upon his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit? They immediately went out into the pollution. The great Gentile world. They, like their Savior and Master Jesus, were no longer afraid of the pollution of the Gentiles. But the apostles, each one, went out into the great and open world proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And we hear again and again how their proclamation of the gospel bore good fruit. And that is exactly what Paul speaks to us today in his letter to the Colossians that the whole world is bound up into the very life that is given in the proclamation of the gospel, the good fruit of belief in Jesus the Messiah. And the result, finally, as he concludes in our epistle today, is that each one who believes in that Messiah are qualified. They are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is the great, glorious object of the Christian faith, to be raised in glory and to participate as sons and daughters of the kingdom. And so we pray each day, but as we conclude our Trinity season, it is most appropriate that we pray that God would make his kingdom known even now in our midst, that each one of us with our various talents that God has blessed us with would be bound up in the ministry of the church and that we might in our own way bring in the kingdom in this place. There is, no, there is no act or vocation that, as we just sang in our wonderful hymn from George Herbert, that is too mean, that is too low, that each one of us is called in our own vocations to give ourselves to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and that we proclaim him as the rec- resurrected Lord, the source of our life, the source of our forgiveness. And so we pray, just as Father Heaton led us in our collect today, that wonderful prayer in which we ask that God would absolve us of our sins. And I pray it again for you now. O Lord, we beseech thee, absolve thy people from their offenses, that through thy bountiful goodness, we may all be delivered from the bands of those sins which by our frailty we have committed. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, For Jesus Christ's sake, our blessed Lord and Savior, amen.